Hello and welcome back to the Fall of the Roman Empire. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 38 called The Battle of Adrianople. In the last episode, we left the Eastern Emperor Valens at Adrianople where he was about to launch his attack on the Goths. Even though Gratian's Western army was only a few days march away and the Western general Ricimer had actually arrived in Valens's camp to encourage him to wait for a combined overwhelming attack, we discussed how Valens wanted to win a victory over the Goths all by himself. This was because he was unpopular in Constantinople and had been taunted by the mob for failing to take action against the Goths. Matters were only made worse by Gratian's recent triumph over the German tribe called the Lentienses. Valens was jealous of Gratian, as described by our best source for this period, Ammianus Marcellinus, who wrote, quote, he was eager to put himself on a level with his nephew, whose exploits irked him by some glorious deed of his own, end quote. He was, in short, a man with something to prove. And when Valens held a council of war with his generals, he only received bad advice. For Ammianus says the flattery of others made him decide to opt for battle immediately. Quote, they urged immediate action to prevent Gratian sharing in a victory, which in their opinion was already as good as won. End quote. Meanwhile, on the Gothic side, Fritigan, the chief of the Tavingai tribe, knew he was heavily outnumbered and desperately wanted to delay battle to give time for the other main Gothic tribe, the Grutungi, as well as a group of Alans, to join him. So, on the same night that Valens held his council of war, Fritigan sent a Christian priest to him as a peace envoy. But Valens would have none of it. He had decided on war and the priest was sent packing. The next day, on the 9th of August, AD 378, Valens rode north from the city of Adrianople with his army, including all the elite regiments of the Eastern Army, to meet the Goths, who were encamped only a few miles away. At the top of a steep slope, a huge array of barbarian wagons, a couple of miles long, came into sight. The long columns of Roman legionaries halted, Still trying to buy time, Fritigan sent a last-minute deputation to discuss peace. The Emperor Valens foolishly accepted, and discussions began. Meanwhile, the Roman army deployed into its battle formation, a mixture of cavalry and infantry mustered on each wing, with the bulk of the heavy infantry in the centre. The hot August sun was burning. The Roman legionaries felt that they were being cooked in their heavy armour, They were already tired and sweating from the eight-mile march to reach the Goths. Then the Goths set fire to the dry grass in front of them and the air was made even hotter and more oppressive for the Romans. Both sides waited while Fritigan wasted time with offers of peace. His deputies even promised that he would come to meet Valens himself if high-ranking hostages were exchanged. The Western General Ricimer courageously offered himself as a hostage and was actually on his way towards the Gothic lines when something completely unexpected happened. On the Roman right wing, a couple of regiments began an unauthorised attack on the wagon circle, but no sooner did they advance than they retreated back again. Ricimer wisely decided not to offer himself as a hostage. Negotiations ended and the battle began. 
Amianus's account is the best we have, but even it is a little disjointed, and unlike the Emperor Julian's Persian campaign where Amianus was personally present, we know that he wasn't there at Adrianople and relied on second-hand information. So what seems to have happened was that although the first fighting was on the Roman right wing, Amianus says that it was the Roman left wing which made the most progress, advancing right up to the Gothic wagon circle. But then, disaster for the Romans. The Gothic cavalry arrived. These were the Grutungi and Alans who Fritigan had been waiting for. They transformed the battle. Amianus says, quote, They shot forward like a thunderbolt and routed with great slaughter all they could come to grips with, end quote. Their onslaught seems to have destroyed the Roman left wing, and because of this, the Roman legionaries in the centre found themselves outflanked by the Gothic cavalry while also facing a horde of Gothic infantry in front of them. Although these soldiers were the elite regiments of the Eastern Army and probably as good as Julian's Gallic legions, whose steadfastness defeated the Alemanni at the Battle of Strasbourg in 357, this time they were too penned in on all sides to use their weapons effectively. Amianus says they were, quote, so closely huddled together that a man could hardly wield his sword or draw back his arm once he'd stretched it out. Dust rose in such clouds as to hide the sky. In consequence, it was impossible to see the enemy's missiles in flight and dodge them. All found their mark and dealt death on every side. End quote. The Romans were using the densely packed legionary formations, probably involving the testudo or tortoise shield walls, which were normally their main competitive advantage, and whose invincibility had broken the morale of the Alemanni at the Battle of Strasbourg. But this time, they didn't work against the Goths. Nevertheless, despite the desperate situation, for quite a while the legionaries held their ground, Amianus describes a bloody battle with both sides taking heavy casualties. Quote, you might see the barbarian towering in his fierceness, hissing or shouting, fall with his legs pierced through or his right hand cut off. End quote. Finally, Valens's legionaries, quote, weak from hunger, parched with thirst and weighed down by their armour, end quote, broke under the pressure of the Gothic attack. Only the most elite Roman regiments, like the Lanciarii and Matiarii, kept fighting while the others fled. The result was slaughter. Ammianus said, quote, The barbarians spared neither those who yielded nor those who resisted. End quote. It was one of Rome's most disastrous defeats. Contemporaries were unanimous in acknowledging its significance. Ammianus said it was the worst defeat since the disastrous Battle of Cannae in 216 BC, when Hannibal had destroyed most of the Roman army in Italy and left the Republic on the brink of collapse. Two-thirds of the Eastern Roman army was killed by the Goths, maybe 20,000 legionaries and cavalry. What was particularly damaging was that most of the Eastern army's elite regiments had been destroyed. As we'll discuss shortly, these soldiers were extremely difficult to replace, and in my view the damage was so severe that it would not be until the 6th century, so over a 100 years later, that the Emperor Justinian and his general Belisarius would be able to create 
create an army as professional and experienced as that destroyed at Adrianople. And of course, by that time, the Western Empire had long fallen. So Adrianople was more than just a battle lost. It was a mortal blow to the Roman army. And the decline of the Roman army is a subject I'll return to in future episodes as a key cause of the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Now, the roll call of Roman dead was truly astonishing. It included the Eastern Emperor Valens himself, of course, but almost all of his senior military officers were also killed. That was 25 tribunes who were commanders of legions, typically, and so equivalent generals, as well as the Magister Peditum and the Magister Equitum, who were Trajanus and Valerianus, respectively, and who were the two most senior commanders in the Eastern Army and equivalent, ready to field marshals. No one knows exactly what happened to Valens. He was either killed randomly on the battlefield, or one story recounts that he fled to a farmhouse which was burned and he died in the flames. To be honest, even had he survived the battle, I doubt he would have lasted long, for contemporaries were absolutely certain that the disaster at Adrianople was 100% his fault. To begin with, had he waited for Gratian's army, a Roman victory would probably have been achieved. Even excusing his jealousy of Gratian, his management of the army on the day of the battle was appallingly bad. First, he relied too heavily on the faulty intelligence of his scouts, who suggested the Grutungi were not in the vicinity and which prompted him to think he had a decisive numerical advantage. Second, he made a decisive tactical error in marching his soldiers for eight hours to the battlefield so that they were already exhausted even before the battle began. Experienced and skilful generals like Julius Caesar and Julian the Apostate always made the well-being of their troops their top priority and would never have made that sort of basic mistake. Third, he was deceived by Fritigan's delaying tactics and wasted time negotiating with the Goths even after he'd apparently decided to commit to battle. On every measure that mattered, Valens failed miserably. The only consolation for the Romans was that he paid the ultimate price for his failure. He died at the age of almost 50 after a reign of a little less than 14 years. The day after their victory, the Goths were gripped by the idea that Adrianople contained a vast treasure belonging to Valens, quote, like wild beasts maddened by the taste of blood, End quote. According to Ammianus, they poured towards the city, determined to take it at any cost. But the city's tall walls, equipped with the brutally effective artillery and manned by soldiers and every able-bodied citizen, were waiting for them. Like waves crashing against rocks, they threw themselves against the Roman defences, only to suffer horrendous losses as missiles and artillery poured down on them. Eventually, terrified in particular by the huge stones thrown by the Roman wall artillery, they retreated, cursing that they'd ever entertain the idea of trying to take the city. 
What the Goths encountered at Adrianople set a standard for the rest of the Gothic War. They simply didn't have sufficient knowledge about siege warfare to take any walled city. After Adrianople, they marched to Constantinople, but one look at its walls, even though these were not yet the mighty Theodosian walls, which would be built over 30 years later, and most of which can still be seen in modern Istanbul, convinced them it would be impossible to take the city. So the result was a stalemate. The Goths couldn't take any of the Roman cities, but the Romans didn't have an army to face them in the field, or at least not in the east. In the west, of course, there was still a formidable Roman army, and this prevented the Goths from advancing west to the Adriatic. To the east, they were confined by the Bosphorus, which prevented their crossing into Anatolia. So the Goths stayed in Thrace, plundering whatever it was they'd missed in the previous two years. Meanwhile, the Romans prepared to take their revenge. The Western Emperor Gratian helped to secure the appointment of Theodosius to replace Valens. This would prove to be a momentous appointment, for not only did Theodosius become the last ruler of a united Roman Empire, but his reign also set the scene for the collapse of the Western Empire. But we're a long way from getting to all of that. When Theodosius was appointed in January 379, he was still only a humble general and he'd been appointed for one task and one task only, to defeat the Goths. Now, to help him do this, the Western Emperor Gratian gave him control of Illyria, which formerly belonged to him as part of the Western Empire, so that Theodosius at least had direct control of all the Roman forces in the Balkans. However, that was the limit of Gratian's help. What he certainly didn't do was to send the Western army to Theodosius's aid, as had been the original idea before the Battle of Adrianople. I've always been a bit puzzled why Gratian was willing to send a good part of the Western army to help Valens in 378, but wouldn't do that with Theodosius. I think the reason probably is that he was too worried about a collapse in the West should the Western army go the same way as the Eastern army at Adrianople. So, as the senior emperor, Gratian just instructed Theodosius, his junior partner, to rebuild the Eastern army and get on with the job of beating the Goths. Now let's just pause here and go into a bit of Theodosius's background. If you recall, his father, also called Theodosius, had been Valentinian's main general and had successfully restored Roman control of Britain and North Africa, as well as maintaining the Roman frontier along the Rhine. However, when Valentinian died in 375, Theodosius's father fell victim to a court intrigue and a jealous minister, Maximinus, who seized power for a couple of years while allegedly acting for the four-year-old Valentinian II, executed Theodosius's father for reasons that had never become apparent. His son was exiled to Spain. However, the Theodosian family's fall from grace was short-lived. By 376, Gratian effectively took over control of his brother Valentinian II's territories, executed Maximinus, and restored Theodosius to an army command in Moesia along the Upper Danube. 
Now, we actually know very little about what Theodosius was doing before the Battle of Adrianople. It seems he was stationed in the Balkans close to Thrace, where the trouble with the Goths all began in 376. But somehow, luckily for him, he didn't take part in the Battle of Adrianople. The fact that Theodosius had a military background was probably the main reason why Gratian selected him, and in 379 he set about rebuilding the eastern army. The problem was that the defeat at Adrianople had literally eliminated nearly all the elite regiments of the eastern Roman army. Rebuilding an army to anything like the same level of experience and ability would take years, if not decades, and Theodosius had just over a year to do it. He recruited from three main sources – Veterans were recalled to the ranks, new troops were called up and trained, and he also gathered barbarian mercenaries. But clearly, this new army was not going to be anything like as good as the one that had been destroyed at Adrianople. But did Theodosius think that? Apparently not, because in the summer of 380, only 18 months after he'd become emperor, he decided to test out this rookie army and advanced on the Goths and offered battle. Bad decision. He should have waited longer, for the Roman army was defeated. There are no detailed records of the battle at all, and consequently, we have no idea of what exactly happened, but it was a clear Roman defeat. Theodosius had failed in his first task. But while Theodosius had clearly misjudged the military situation, suggesting he wasn't actually a very good soldier, what he did next demonstrated that while he may not have been a soldier like his father, he was nevertheless a shrewd and cunning politician. For not only did he survive the court intrigues that developed in Constantinople against him after his defeat, but he also found a diplomatic solution to the problem of the Goths. This became a possibility because after six years of war, the Goths were as keen to make peace as the Romans. Although they'd now defeated two Roman armies, one at Adrianople in 378 and Theodosius's new model army in 380, they were incapable of taking any of the Roman towns and cities and were confined to roaming the countryside in search of plunder at first and then probably simply in search of food to feed their starving population. In addition, the Western army was very effective at pinning them into the Balkans and preventing their migration westward towards Italy. Therefore, in October 382, Theodosius negotiated a settlement with the Goths. Hailed by his courtiers as a Roman victory, the Treaty of 382 was in fact the exact opposite. It was the first agreement the empire had made in its history to hand over a portion of territory for occupation by a foreign invader. For Theodosius agreed that the Goths could settle in an area south of the Danube, and although we don't know precisely where it was, it seems to have been in Moesia and Macedonia. This meant that the Goths evacuated Thrace and the devastated region was returned to Roman rule. Indeed, archaeological evidence suggests that the wealthy Roman villas that the Goths had destroyed throughout the length and breadth of Thrace were rebuilt within the safety of the towns and cities, which had of course never fallen to the Goths. 
But what this treaty did mark was the first time that Roman territory had basically been ceded to a foreign power. So it was a clear Gothic victory, not a Roman one. Our knowledge of the details of the peace treaty are virtually non-existent. We only know three things for sure. First, that the Goths were still fully armed and autonomous. This was an absolute game changer, for never in Roman history had a group of barbarians succeeded in effectively conquering a slice of Roman territory. Second, there was a regime change demanded by the Romans, Fritigan, disappears from the history books, presumably on Theodosius's insistence. This makes sense since he'd become the symbol of Gothic defiance, but it may also suggest that his own political standing had fallen. The Goths were probably by now as weary of this as were the Romans, and the replacement of Fritigan with a new leader, although we don't know who it was, was a price worth paying. Third, the Goths promised to supply troops to the Romans, albeit under their own commanders and not Roman ones, should they be called on to do so. This would be important in future years, and the Goths took this commitment seriously, suggesting that they did see themselves now as Roman allies. And of course, Rome had a long history of forming alliances with barbarian tribes, but hitherto they'd always been with tribes outside Rome's borders, not within them. There was an interesting spin put on the peace treaty by a Roman senator called Themistius, many of whose writings have survived to this day. He was a consummate politician and lived through the reigns of most of the emperors of the 4th century, finally ending with that of Theodosius. What he was best at was flattering people, and he did his best to present the Treaty of 382 as a Roman victory, as I mentioned. To do this, he argued that although the Goths were an independent nation being admitted into the empire, there was a clear precedent from history showing that they would just be absorbed and incorporated into the Roman world and didn't really pose any sort of long-term problem. The example he chose was the major Gallic invasion of Greece back in the 3rd century BC, so over 600 years before the Battle of Adrianople. What had happened then was that a huge group of Gauls had migrated in a rather similar fashion to the Goths, south of the Danube into the territories of the Greek successor states to Alexander the Great's empire. The Macedonians had only just managed to beat them and diverted them across the Bosphorus into Anatolia, which is modern Turkey, where they set up a Gallic state that survived for a couple of hundred years before fading away and being incorporated into the Roman Empire. Indeed, the Greeks had always called this part of Anatolia Galatia in reference to them being Gauls. Now, Themistius said, hey, these Goths will be just like the Gauls. They'll become Romans in time. Just you wait and see. But what he conveniently forgot to mention was that, in fact, a century after the Greeks had failed to defeat the Galatians, the Roman army had had to defeat them before they were actually absorbed into first the Republic and then the Empire. So unfortunately for the Romans, Themistius was simply not telling the truth. And the truth was 
that, however much the Romans protested, the Goths had actually won the war. Their crushing victory at Adrianople and the Roman army's subsequent inability to defeat them were game-changers. The peace treaty of 382 represented a new and perilous precedent for the empire. For the first time in Rome's history, it had to acknowledge defeat at the hands of a foreign power and the cessation of territory, albeit at this point only a small part of the empire to that invader. But over the next hundred years, exactly what happened with the Goths would be repeated again and again with a host of different barbarian tribes, until the Romans found that the whole of the Western Empire was in the hands of the barbarians. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, of course, I'd be delighted for any ratings or reviews in whichever podcast app you use. And next week, we'll continue with the story of how the emperors Gratian and Theodosius tried to keep the Roman Empire together as it started its downwards descent. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Music